So I have identified, I have defined rather the great rotation as the Bloomberg Commodity Index divided by the triple Qs, which is the NASDAQ. So I'm basically dividing commodities by technology. And I'm saying that in the markets, the commodity markets are going to gain dramatically over the technology markets. And the performance is going to be dramatically better than the technology markets for the next five, maybe 10, maybe 15 years. Hey, you're gonna love this interview with Tony Greer. He has spent decades trading commodities, tech, and gold at firms like UBS and Goldman Sachs. In this video, we break down his great rotation thesis that basically says tech has had its run and commodities are next. We also talk about his principles for getting into investing and some of the reasons that he believes inflation is here to stay. Stay with us. Tony, welcome to the podcast, man. I'm excited to be talking with you. Thanks, Aaron. I'm honored to be here. Thank you. So uh, I have this kind of weird um, like dichotomy of mind going on where I follow this collection of folks. Uh, I, I see the Doomberg mug in the background. He's been a past guest on the show. Other folks talking about energy, talking about inflation. And it's you know this, this almost like slow moving car crash that those who are paying attention seem to be witnessing. Um, also trading opportunity for, for folks uh, like yourself. But simultaneously, I have this other kind of collection of people in my life who that's just not the topic of conversation. They're talking about, you know, the, the, we're, we have a 10 month old, like the, the, the first year birthday party, the 10,000 other things that, that, you know, come up in conversation. I don't have many people to uh, not only offload my interest in, but, but learn about it. Uh, with. So I'm really excited to have you here. And I was hoping we could start off to try to just paint a picture. Some people say inflation is transitory. Some people say this, you know, uh, energy situation is purely a byproduct of who is sitting in uh, the top seat at the executive office. And the reality is, is that it's a much larger systemic picture. So from your seat, what do you see as it pertains to inflation, energy, commodities generally? Oh, okay, Aaron, there's, there's certainly uh, a lot to unpack there. And I want to try to unpack it carefully because it's a touchy subject, you know, um, I have to say that I, I I would argue, I would push back a little bit on the idea that it might not have been started by the White House, right? Because we can draw, you know, as a market guy, I can draw a lot of charts for you with a lot of cutoff points at the November 2020 election um, that show how markets began behaving radically differently in the wake of that, you know, decision and in the wake of the next administration. The reason for that we're finally seeing on our screens is that, you know, Joe Biden basically promised to end drilling, you know, and that that was one of his campaign promises. And he is very, very effectively following through on that. Right. So he started off with executive orders to cancel the creation of the transcontinental pipeline. Um, that would have allowed us to get cheap oil from Canada and refine it and send it out to refineries. It would have been a great way to keep gas prices low, right? So the cancellation of that pipeline is a major, major um, issue. It's not the only issue, but the other issues are um, several judges within the 
um, administration have gone ahead and canceled leases that ENP companies have had on federal lands and just said, no more drilling here. Sorry, we're closed. And so there, in addition to that, there's been a little bit of, um, well, there's, there's investment in the space in drilling and certainly in laying pipelines becomes wildly discouraged because it becomes so wildly politically unpopular, right? If you try to raise money to build a pipeline today, you wouldn't have a lot of people picking up your phone, you know? So we've got the situation where I can go right into the number one argument for why inflation is different this time. Right. A lot of people are throwing back to the 80s now when I was a kid. And I remember um, I remember the gas lines in the 70s and I remember inflation of the late 70s into the early 80s. And we can now today look at a chart and say, wow, we have CPI, PPI today at levels that we had back then. Okay, so now is where I can start pointing to where the thing where um, the energy markets and financial markets are very different this time. Right. In the 80s, we raised Fed funds as high as 12 percent in order to combat 10 percent PPI and CPI, because unless you raise the Fed funds rate above the rate of inflation, it's really hard to slow down the rate of inflation. So what we've got today is Fed funds at 75 basis points, right? So that's one situation where it's different, where we haven't really begun to earnestly fight the inflation that's taken hold, right? There's been no effort so far to slow that down. And the other um, factor that I could point to that illustrates that it's different this time is that in 2022, Commodity prices are high because there's an attack on supply, right? In the past, and even in the 70s and 80s, when we had commodity shortages and we had intense commodity inflation, we could pivot to the commodity producers and say, at this price, we need you to produce more, right? So at, at, a, at a certain elevated price, a producer produces more of the commodity, satisfies the demand. Next thing, we have a price pullback eventually, right? It, there's eventually a set of dominoes that will fall there if we increase production at a higher price. That's how you control it. Today, we've got an attack on supply, right? The Biden administration is not allowing new drilling, right? We've got judges canceling leases on federal lands, Um and there is a strong push from every angle of the administration, as far as I can tell, from Joe Biden to his press secretary, to the energy and transportation secretaries, right to the appointed climate change czar, John Kerry, right? John Kerry, in the wake of $5 gasoline at the pumps, which is caused by their policies, comes out and says, we've got to transition faster, right? We've got to get to electronic vehicles faster. The energy sec- uh, the transportation secretary says, well, if you guys bought electric vehicles, you wouldn't have a problem with $5 gasoline at the pump, right? Sorry, you know, spend the $75,000 and this $5 at the pump won't bother you, right? So they are very much pushing this agenda toward electronic vehicles simply at a pace that's too fast for our energy infrastructure to handle, right? And I think that that is the, the major rub today. I don't think that you'd find anybody that would, you know, argue that climate change is not a thing or would argue that, 
we that that the human race isn't at some level adversely affecting the uh, the uh, climate or or the ecosystems, and that we shouldn't probably address that at some level. I don't think you get too much pushback against those types of ideas, but when we're jamming it on the tape in a way that is literally doing serious damage to our ability to be self-sustained, you know, a, a energy independent country. Right. So we've sacrificed our security through a lot of this. And and that's why, Aaron, I see the, a major problem still that we're going to have to deal with is that we're trying to force this transition so fast that we have caused energy shortages. We have caused super tight markets. We have caused a situation where both in the U.S. and in Europe, we are well below our five year average storage levels of natural gas. Right. So if we're well below these storage levels of natural gas, we have to consider where we're going to go to get baseload power. Right. Because we're still generating the majority of our baseload power and natural gas here in the U.S. Over in Europe, they're in a predicament where they are getting 40 percent of their energy from a country that doesn't necessarily like them in Russia. Right. So this is where they have become beholden to Russia for their energy. They've got low storage because they are continually penalizing investment in the expansion of gas drilling, pipeline, upstream production, things like that. So until the pendulum swings politically to a level where the people are saying, we can't go for $7.50 at the pump or $8 at the pump, right? Like something has to be done. Until we get there and there is some sort of uh, a give and take within the administration, you know, where they say, okay, look, we get it, right? Like, I, I don't even, we don't even need for them to admit that they made an error. We just need for them to adjust, right? Unfortunately, Aaron, now here's an even bigger issue. When we've come to the points where we've gotten a response out of the administration as to how they're going to adjust for this, right? The people in the oil industry are saying, yeah, adjust for adjust for the leases that you canceled on public lands, right? On federal lands, adjust for the things that matter, adjust by building the XL pipeline. That solves the problem instantaneously, almost. When we pivot to the administration and say, hey, man, Biden admin, we need some help here. What are we going to do? He says, well, we'll write some checks and, and help people deal with inflation and we will go after the energy companies for price gouging. And they seem to be willing to do almost anything except directly. Did I lose you, Aaron? Oh, sorry. Did it? sorry I'm still that. hearing you. Sorry about that. I thought I went blank for a second. So they seem to be doing anything but directly and most simply addressing the issue. So I know I laid a lot of, of uh, data and I laid a lot of the platform of my ideas out there, but I want to give you a chance to pick my arguments apart at, at whichever points you want to, because that was kind of a long run on, on how I see the energy markets today. Well, it's, it's, it's less a, a desire to pick these things apart because I don't think there's a ton of disagreement in, in terms of what I'm hearing from your view and where I land, but uh, a reinforcement of a specific element, which is basic economics 101 supply and demand and the addressing of uh, do people have the money that they need to pay for something? Can we stimulate the economy with an injection of cash is a very uh, kind of different treatment. If, if, if we've got this, this diagnosis of inflation, 
and you're thinking about the different tools in the doctor's tool belt to potentially address the issue. What you're really hyper fixating on, I think rightly is the supply of the things that are needed. If we have low supplies in our reserves for natural gas, if we have a low supply of wells to drill oil, or take the, the uh, kind of ESG electrification thesis to its logical conclusion, are we mining enough copper, nickel? Uh, do we have enough aluminum to actually execute on that strategy? And across the board, the things that get taken for granted. I just think about this as, you know, my water bottle, but there's some bamboo. I don't actually know what this material is, probably some sort of uh, rubber and uh, a bit of steel in it. Yeah. Where are these base components coming from? And are those inputs at the same and elevated, a hyper-elevated price relative to what they have been historically? That's what the average person is feeling at the pump in the retail environment and what you're trading with TG Macro, what you're uh, educating your clients to do is to, you know, see those actual base effects and try to allocate their portfolios accordingly. Exactly. Exactly. So what I think is, um, you know, that kind of gets us to the markets and the way I see a great rotation happening, which I've been calling it. And, and there may be other people out there that have called it a great rotation. There was recently like a little argument on Twitter as to who came up with it. And I, I, I've never claimed to own it, but somebody said that they heard it from me first. And I was like, yeah, I just made it up. So, I, you know, maybe I came up with it or not, but it's just two words. And to me, it means it means everything. Actually, it means the first thing that I think about when I wake up in the morning. Right. So I have identified I have um, defined rather the great rotation as the Bloomberg Commodity Index divided by the triple Q's, which is the NASDAQ. Okay, so I'm basically dividing commodities by technology, right? And I'm saying that in the markets, the commodity markets are going to gain dramatically over the technology markets and the performance is going to be dramatically better than the technology markets for the next, I don't know, five, maybe 10, maybe 15 years, right? Because I still feel very strongly that we came out of a 15 to 20 year period of intense deflation brought about by the rise of technology. And I believe that that deflationary run, which ended with a pandemic, which was preceded by interest rates going nearly negative, you know, going negative in Europe and nearly negative here. You know, these things that have happened all sort of generationally and have changed dramatically in the last several months. So this is where I'm very keen on the markets being on a generational turning point where, for example, today, the energy industry is roughly 3% of the S&P because, because of the capitalization and low valuations. It's simply a much smaller part of the S&P's ecosystem. 27% of the S&P is technology, right? Because of all of the market, the massive market capitalization of the technology companies. We remember we were talking about trillion dollar market caps for Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, um, and Microsoft. And in my opinion, those companies at the peak of the lockdown all saw their finest moment, right? So at the end of that deflationary cycle, the technology companies 
courtesy of the governments that were locking down civilians, saw their finest moment for earnings, right? Everybody was locked in their home, communicating on Facebook, shopping on Amazon, uh, entertaining themselves on Google and Netflix. And right after the lockdown, the earnings in those names reflected that, right? The earnings went berserk and all of these stocks saw massive peaks technically, Right. We saw a massive peak in the FANG stocks, if you're familiar with that complex, which we call in the equity markets, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. Right. The FANG complex, which were at one time the five largest market cap stocks in tech. So we've seen that complex basically back off almost 40 percent from its highs as we see interest rates rise. Right now, the reason that they're backing off with the rise of interest rates is because they're all growth companies and you can finance growth with abundant liquidity and zero interest rates all you want. Once interest rates go higher, it costs much more for you to finance your growth. Right. So the market is now taking value away from these companies, which were the best growth companies in the market for the last 15 years. And we're now finally just starting to assign more value to the physical commodity companies, right? They're energy companies, metals and mining companies, uh, refineries, gold, gold stocks, things like that. So the great rotation to me is now that we've got this attack on commodity supply, which is the tip of the spear is the attack on natural gas and oil supply. But as you know, um, we use natural gas to make ammonia, which goes into fertilizer. And we've seen fertilizer prices you know, go up eight and tenfold, which is dramatically changing the composition of the American farm. Right? They're now switching to soybeans because they use a lot less fertilizer than corn and wheat. They're getting a lot less protein per square yard of output with that switch. So it's really, really, you know, it's, it's changing the, the composition and the mechanism of the entire food supply chain. Not to mention that the distribution side of that chain is now dealing with $5 gasoline when it was just dealing with one and one half dollar gasoline for the last five years. So as you can see, Aaron, we are um, what the administration, their, their plan for net zero has caused this huge uprising in the energy fossil fuel markets, and they don't seem to want to address the issue within that market, right? They want to address the issue with what? More borrowing, right? They want to address the issue with what? More printing from the treasury. We'll send out more checks from the treasury. We'll print the money at the Federal Reserve. We'll send out checks through the treasury. And that in itself is as inflationary as everything that they've been doing to address economic weakness, which got us to this hyperinflationary scenario at the moment, right? So the biggest news story over the last 20 years to me that never got told was the Fed doubling their balance sheet in response to market weakness caused by the lockdown, right? So when the S&P was cratering um, after they locked down the economy, they used a mechanism of, you know, basically just adding all of the bad assets that were for sale at the time to their balance sheet. So they took their balance sheet from four trillion to eight trillion. And now we're seeing the inflation that that caused. And they are pivoting and saying that Putin's invasion of Ukraine is what did it.
right? So to me, the root of the inflation is not necessarily the Biden admin. The Biden admin has choke has put a choke point on energy, but the root of the inflation has really been blatant, irresponsible behavior by global central banks for the past, I don't know, call it since the great financial crisis, you know, when they started cracking open the kitty to address all problems, right? Everything became, ah, we'll just add to the Fed balance sheet, right? We'll just take all toxic assets out of the market that are, you know, for sale right now. We'll put them on the Fed balance sheet and we won't worry about it. So all of that borrowing and and that sort of unnatural market action has oddly been deflation, excuse me, inflationary for our economy, but bullish for the dollar, which has been kind of an oxymoron and very difficult for people in macro to understand. Right. But one of the things going on is the dollar is rallying sharply because other currencies are getting decimated by uh, their purchasing power is getting decimated more than the dollars by this inflation that's going around the globe. So if you have a weak currency, your currency is the first one to go down when inflation strikes, right? And people are grabbing the stronger currency. So right now, the dollar is the sort of best looking, um, you know, I don't know, how do you call those uh, scenarios? What the the best, uh, it's winning the ugly shirt contest kind of thing, right? Where, you know, the euro is getting destroyed, uh, the yen is getting annihilated, and everybody's rushing into the dollar right now. It's it's 2 a.m. at the bar, and of the lineup that remains, it's the <laughs> It's the dollar, one. right, and everybody's hanging on. So that that's kind of the scenario. So that's where we are, yeah. man. You know, that, that kind of covers it from the commodity space and the choke on supply right through to the financial markets, and it kind of touches on the source of this inflation, which I see as twofold, you know, the, the central bank profligacy of the last 10 years or 20 years and the Biden administration's blatant attack on energy supply. So I want to I want to try to tie you gave us so much. There. I want to try to tie some stuff together. So one of the elements here, very hard for someone uh, my age who just, you know, I, I wasn't alive during the, the 70s. I don't remember. I, I really don't even remember like the dot com crash. It's more something I'm, I'm kind of told about. Yeah. Um, to just try to contextualize. So my entire life has has been this tech sector bull run. And it's been defined by the, you know, almost like a Peter Thielism is, you know, not any sort of, you know, rocket ships or flying cars, but, you know, 140 characters and these other kind of digital platforms coming to the fore. Mm -hmm. And the return to, like I said, the physical world, like what is my water bottle made of? What is this light that's on me made of? And where do those things come from? And that has been largely propelled by, as you're saying, with these historically low interest rates, like literally human history. We're not talking about American history. We're not talking about, you know, recent decades. We're talking about human existence, record low access to capital. Well, of course, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world are happy to borrow at sub 2% to fuel growth in the double, potentially even you know triple digits at the earlier stages of, of their existence, you simultaneous it. to these energy companies, some of these things that make stuff in the physical world, having exceedingly high barriers to capital relative to other players in the market and just in general in the history of their existence. It used to be a day where the biggest oil company was like the best client that the bank could lend to, yeah. and that has receded significantly. So with all that being said, you are a trader. You have a background you know, trading at, at Goldman Sachs and UBS and, and these other kind of blue chip environments. 
in the present, what does, how, how does that practically apply to the business that you run and the portfolio that you manage? Uh, well, that, that's a great, a great question, Aaron. And that, that is, um, you know, the, my experience in commodity markets is, um, you know, the reason why I have a voice today in the markets and the reason why I'm able to, you know, um, help people by writing a publication every day that helps them navigate this market. Right. So I, I do, you know, I, I remember everything from the, in, you know, uh, inflation of the seventies to the get, like I said, to the gas lines, to the day that Amazon came out to the day that I could, um, you know, order a Netflix CD to my house to rent, you know, like I remember the dot-com crash, like it was yesterday. I mean, I was a 30 something year old trader for that. So, um, all of this that's going on now is just something that fits within the context of all of that. Right. So that experience has been what allowed me to get out ahead of number one, protecting your portfolio and, and number two, what was coming in the energy markets, right? To make a long story short, Aaron, I, I've kind of been, I left Goldman Sachs in 2000. This is a very relevant story. I left Goldman Sachs, my desk, my commodity trading desk in March of 2000 to go and trade tech stocks for myself, right? So I started a trading company that was essentially built like a hedge fund um, when I left Goldman Sachs and at that precise moment was the beginning of a commodity super cycle and the beginning of the dot-com bubble bursting right in my face. So I got that education and I paid for that lesson real time. And, you know, over the course of time, realized that I could at least educate clients as to what was going on in the commodity world. So... This um, writing the navigator and, and breaking away from being an equity sales trader was a natural extension of that, of, of sort of writing about markets and trying to guide people. And then when the pandemic, ha the pandemic happened and crude oil went to zero, literally, um, because a lot of merchants had to pay people to take their oil cargoes off of their hands because they had nowhere to go with them, um, that was another once in history, a once in human history situation. Um, so I, I, you know, it was very easy to realize that that was a once in history situation. It was easy to realize that there was a mega misunderstanding in the markets about what was going on when crude oil was collapsing like that. Like the thing that made me wake up to the fact that the world didn't understand what was going on was I got a phone call from a friend of mine who's not necessarily in the markets but he said, you know, all right, so Tone, let me get this right. When I go to the gas station now, I'm going to fill up my car and they're going to pay me per gallon, right, that I take. So we've, we've switched it, right? We're switching into a new, a new, um, yeah, a, a new um, paradigm. Yeah, a new, a new dimension. We're, we're going into a new dimension now, whereby when I go to the gas station, I'm going to come away with a full tank of gas and a pocket of cash. So now tell me how, how, how are we going to manage this? You know, and I'm saying like, no, man, that is absolutely not what's going on. So what I realized was people didn't really understand what was happening. And I, I, I thought for my, to myself for a minute, I said, OK, what's the most logical trade with with oil going to zero and gasoline going to 50 cents? 
And I called up my old desk at Goldman Sachs and I said, will somebody sell me my lifetime supply of gasoline right now? So I'm just going to roughly rough it out, do on a calculator how much gas I'm going to use for, I don't know, I'm, I'm 50 something. I got 20 more years of driving. I drive how many miles a week, this many weeks per year, and it's this many gallons. So I would love to write a check and, and buy that gasoline like right here. And when the guy on the other side of the phone was like, what are you nuts? Like, we can't do that. I realized that like we had a generational opportunity to say, all right, th th this is totally unsustainable. The fact that, you know, people are paying, uh, merchants are paying other merchants to take barges of oil off of their hands when, you know, for the last 2,000 years, the last several thousand years, we've been burning through 100,000 barrels of oil a day just to get the lights on, right? So now that was my idea that it was time to get massively long the energy space. So I bought oil, I bought, you know, energy commodities, I bought energy equities, and I try to guide my clients into the same thing, saying that this 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 is just a mismatch in in value, right? This is just a this is like a global eclipse going on right now, and you're never going to see this again. So we with that that view and 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 oil going to zero is what birthed then, you know, the opinion that eventually, after the Fed doubled its balance sheet. While the Fed was looking for inflation for the last several years, if you remember, their big problem was they couldn't attain their 2% inflation target, no matter what they did. So that leads me to believe that this is why they let inflation run hot on this side of the pandemic, because it took them so long to get it going in the first place. So now when we're in a situation where you realize that interest rates are going to have to go much higher to contend with higher commodity prices and this inflation that we're seeing now, headline inflation of 8% CPI, interest rates are not going to be pinned at zero forever, right? So that component of the trade led me to believe that if rates are going to rise, then it's all over for big tech, as in all over, as in we saw their finest moment during the lockdown, the response to the lockdown and the response to the market weakness is the worst thing that ever happened to technology. Right. Because that was the Fed doubling their balance sheet. We continue to borrow a massive amount of money and now interest rates are going higher. So, as you said before, they can no longer finance growth at zero percent. So now those names are probably going to get repriced. And a lot of the companies that have been lying there trading, you know, the, the, the cheapest multiples in the S&P for years and years and years left for dead in periods of deflation are now likely going to become the most sought after assets in the stock market. And I think that there'll be a day when energy stocks and food producers and ag companies trade like Bitcoin traded in 2020, where, where, they, where they just go up every single day and nobody really has quite an understanding as to why. And that will be you know, when all of this money comes out of big tech and finds a home in what becomes the next set of sectors that are really performing um, and the only set of sectors that may be performing, um, I think that's the great rotation defined to me when all that money comes out, you know, because we ran into this situation alongside the big tech rally where, you know, those FANG stocks became the most widely owned stocks in the stock market, right? They're the biggest, they're the biggest holdings of passive ETFs. They're the biggest holdings of plain vanilla mutual funds. They're the biggest holdings of every single hedge fund. And they're the biggest holdings of every family office and retail investor.
So now we've got the world tilted all one way with their portfolios set up for massive deflation that were killing it for the last 20 years. And in the last 18 months, that's all been turned dramatically upside down. So Aaron, now think about it. If you don't get out of the way of this in your portfolio and, you're, and you stay overweight tech and you want to buy the dip and you stay underweight energy and you want to still sell the rallies, so far on the year, this year, if you're long software, you're down 32%. And if you're not long energy, you are not long the sector that's up 50%. So now think about how many years of performance like that your portfolio could possibly stand. Getting banged down 30% a year in the stocks that have been such great performers and not owning the ones that are exploding up 30%, 50%, 70%. Your portfolio can last probably three years before you, four years maybe before you get wiped out to zero or close to zero. So I, I'm, I'm interested to bring this down even, even more to the micro. I, I know it's TG Macro as the business, but to the micro of your business, TJ Mac, TG Macro, geez, yeah. um, which is uh, a subscription that folks pay for, delivered to their inbox, and it's uh, a synopsis of you know reiterating or, or, or kind of further developing, in this case, your theory of the great rotation, and then delivering to them some practical applications of how to trade that, which is, by my understanding of it, you've got your collection of longs, you've got a couple things that you're short, and you are not only being transparent about what kind of price you would expect them to get to, but also when they were added to your own portfolio, because that's that was an issue that I had. It, you know, my, my experience, I've been pretty transparent about this. I, you know, bought ETH, uh, bought Ethereum into the 2016-2017 rally. I bought Bitcoin uh, right at its nadir, like March, April of 2020. Mm. And so I was, you know, I was pretty convicted, particularly convicted the second time, but it was a really good trade for me. But, you know, I also remember in the, you know, first craziness of Ethereum, like late, uh, early 2018, I had a friend like texting me right, you know, I, I think Bitcoin topped out like between 20 and 21,000. And he was texting me at like 17 or 18,000. He's like, is now a good time to get in? And that was like the first little, oh, you're late. You're definitely not early to the party. I, I know you. I love you. Yeah. You're late. You're a late to the party type of guy. Yeah. Um, and so that was like the little flashing light going off. Huge aside that probably wasn't necessary from the digression standpoint. But to, to, to further take it down to how you think about serving a client base that is reading you, that is coming to you for um for these insights how do you think about like something like batting average and how do you think about something like you know i don't know if you can recommend weighting necessarily but okay I, I buy the thesis tony how do i actually put this into practice in a thoughtful considerate way okay great questions aaron because that is that has become the biggest challenge of managing of being the editor of a newsletter that is a trading newsletter as you identified right i'm 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 trying to distill the stories behind, distill the narrative behind the risk that I'm taking with an overlay of how I'm taking that risk. So my point being that I, I've got this sort of, you know, for example, I've got this idea that there's a great rotation on where there'll be a rotation into commodities and out of technology, right? 
I have new clients call right back to me all the time and say, hey, you've been in oil, you've been in natural resources ETF, you've been in oil and gas stocks for a long time. Is this a good time for me to get in? And my answer 99% of the time is no, right? Everything I do with the navigator is to navigate people in tactically. So for example, we, I was, there, there was a period where I was bullish metals and mining and also bullish oil and gas. Oil and gas was at the highs of the move. Metals and mining had just pulled back into a support level where that it offered much better risk reward. So I had people calling me up saying, you know, do I rush into the energy space now? And for me, when I look at the risk reward there, I look at it and say, no, like one of the things that I'm looking at getting into here is the metals and mining space because it's been a traditionally good performer during stagflation periods, because there are shortages of metal or at least metal inventories are at historic lows. The prices are generally at historic highs. The move to electronic vehicles is bullish base metals. So maybe we buy XME at the 200-day moving average support level, right? So that's the kind of thing, and I just want to keep it as basic as that, where my job is to sort of navigate people into these trades at the right time as well, right? So what I try to offer every day is a collection of the data points and performance points in the market that I think build my conviction in this trade. And I try to present them alongside with headlines that come out that support my trade. Right. And, and I do that by saying, look, you know, here are the energy spreads staying extremely firm. Here is price action, you know, showing that it's extremely positive and strong. Um, here is the energy market reacting to a potentially negative inventory data number and going higher. Right. That's a tell that 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 markets are in a bull market. And I try to sort of offer that confidence in the trade that I'm in. And say, look, this is the way I'm, I'm driving the bus, right? And for everybody that I'm writing to four days a week, you know, their their job is to sort of follow along with me. Um, obviously, there will be certain things that they can navigate into when I navigate into them in the view matrix real time. But if you joined at a certain period, you're obviously going to jump in in the middle of me trading a number of different trades. And so with those trades, I still continue to sort of narrate and navigate the ones that I'm in saying, you know, this is a good level to take a little bit of profit, right? This has been rallying for three months. We've had four consecutive up, excuse me, four consecutive months higher. We're now a certain percentage away from moving average support. You know, sentiment is massively positive as a tactical trading guide, I'm going to offer people the advice to make sales into situations like that. So the whole thing, Aaron, is having this trade on a little bit of what I call a dimmer switch, where when energy stocks pull into support levels, now remember, we're trying to follow this trend higher, right? So on the dimmer switch, when energy pulls into support levels, I want to turn up the dimmer and expand my position. Right. I get much more bullish on dips and say, man, this is the opportunity. Right. A dip in a secular uptrend is how you make money. You get in and you buy that dip um, as we manage the trade and, and, and things get to levels where we want to take profits and, and maybe you get a big gap that goes your way, for example. 
um, I was long, you know, still, I was still long futures that I bought during the lockdown lows in oil that I carried all the way through till when Putin invaded Russia, excuse me, Putin invaded Ukraine. And when Putin invaded Ukraine, oil went from 110 to 130 bid in one fell swoop, right? That was a headline that essentially let me out of my oil trade. So I said, you know, it wasn't going to look any worse for oil trading zero in March of 2020 when I was able to buy some and then continue buying it. And now with Putin invading Ukraine, oil shoots to 130. I get an extra 15% bonus on my trade. That's a signal for me to get out. So I sold all my oil futures into that rally. Right. So from, Got it. it's yeah. from there, the posture has been navigating into the equities and then navigating back into crude oil. And so the whole thing is kind of managing this trade on an ongoing basis. That's that, that's what the morning navigator does. And and really, you know, if you're out for a morning surf, right, like there's always going to be the next wave. And another way to think about it is, yeah, this is one of the waves that I caught three months ago. Like, don't try to swim back to that one. There's another one coming if the thesis is right and if – you know, it's the nature of being a trader. I have to imagine. I don't know from the, the experience that you do, but you just know that there's going to continue to be sets and there's going to continue to be waves. And it's I'll pick the next one. I'll let you know as soon as I've picked it. And that's the kind of premise of working with you. I've got, exactly. So I've got a great example of that recently where, you know, we've been in the pure oil trade, the oil and gas trade for, you know, for months. And then what happened was crack spreads, which is essentially the margin that a refiner can collect when he takes three barrels of crude oil and cracks it into two barrels of jet fuel and one barrel of diesel fuel, right? So that spread that a refiner can collect blew out. Now, follow me, Aaron. That spread blew out from about $5 profit he could collect on each of those three barrels to $50, Right. Oh, my God. Right. Now, the reason that happened is because there was a shortage of diesel and jet fuel and there were very inelastic buyers of the fuel. Right. So the airlines and the freight companies were like, we're not really um, fussed that the price is up 25 percent. We want to buy these cargoes of fuel from you. Right. So what happened is the refinery margins blew out from 10 to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 dollars. And the refineries, the equities in the last two months became better buys or at least smarter purchases for a trader than they had been six months prior to that at lower prices, if that's fair, if you can if you can get your head around that. Yep. You know what I mean? So the situation, for example, when Marathon Petroleum was a $45 stock, they only had a $5 margin, right, on the on the on the oil barrels they were cracking. Now that the margins have expanded, Marathon Petroleum has become a $110 stock that could probably, if margins stay here, go to 300 So we're dealing with really, really, like you said, new waves coming along and new opportunities uh, presenting themselves because of the way this market is changing so dynamically right now. Got it. Uh- well, Tony, this has been fantastic. I think we're going to have to have you back on to continue to try and, and make sense of the world. I know you're a busy man uh, and people can often see you showing up on Real Vision. But before we 
aim towards asking our standard last questions. Um, you just had a graduation party in your household. I know that you grew up uh, with a father who was a trader. Uh, so, so finance has been the family business for quite some time. I'm curious uh, if, if that is something that you foresee continuing in the family and what kind of perspective you offer to the next generation of traders where you know, just kind of another macro picture I want to quickly paint is I read Michael Lewis. I know all about these high frequency algorithmic trading that's going on that are 10 times, you know, a thousand times faster than any human could possibly be doing the thing. And I also have, you know, been highly indoctrinated by the set it and forget it, you know, buy some indexes on Vanguard and just kind of turn your brain off, go to sleep for a couple of decades. Yeah. You sit in between there, which is incredibly fascinating. So from that yeah. vantage point, what do you say to the next generation of potential investors, traders that want to come up and, and do something similar? Man, that's a great, great, great angle, Aaron. I'll tell you this. I always um, I always preach to people, you know, it, it, I don't know if I'm going to hand down the baton to my to any of my children, you know, in terms of them being interested in markets. But I do demand that they understand money and finance, right? I, to me, that's the most, you know, that's the most important thing that people can understand. There should probably be one class per year for the entirety of your education, edu you know, educated life on managing your money and finances, you know, just to sort of keep people, you know, understanding what's kind of important because, there's a lot of freedom that can be born from understanding finance and understanding markets, right? In fact, if you become one of those people that can, you know, manage your nest egg for a living, first you got to create a nest egg, but if you can become one of those people that can manage it for a living, then you've got the ultimate freedom, right? And you, because it's you versus the market and you don't have to report to anybody else. Right. And you know that that the market is something that you've trained yourself, just like all the locals on the floor of the commodity exchanges. These are people that train themselves to survive another day of trading. Right. And, and when you start to think about things on a long term survival basis, including your portfolio, your life savings, your nest egg, whatever it is. You know, when you think about how you want to preserve that for your life, it becomes necessary to understand markets because you got to know where to put it. You know, so that's one of the things that I try to impress on the next generation is number one, the importance of it. And number two, the freedom that can come along with mastering markets. Now, I understand that it's a lot more difficult for the next generation because there were a lot more there were there were the industry was much larger. Right. The finance industry was much bigger in the 90s when I was coming up. I'm just talking about headcount. Right. Where technology has taken a massive amount of headcount out of the market. So. The point is there's not as much opportunity for an individual to grow up and say, hey, I want to come out of college and get a job on a trading desk, right? There were thousands of those jobs when I came out of college. Now, maybe there are hundreds. I don't even know. Maybe there are dozens. I don't know, but that's a lot harder. Wow. So, you know, your quest for your own education in the markets, luckily, that education has become commoditized, where if you want to learn about markets... You can first of all, you can probably learn an enormous amount without taking a dollar out of your wallet, right? You can probably go on YouTube, on Twitter, and be resourceful and and you know figure out the people to follow that are putting out free content and just commenting on markets that can help you learn, 
And I would say that the most important thing, the, the single most important thing is the thing that I have been blessed with my entire professional life. And that has been having number one, a deep network and number two, a serious mentor or as many as you can handle in, in trading, in finance, in, in being able to take a partner and say, what do you think about this? You know, th this, you know, just somebody in your life that understands markets and understands money the way you do or the way you uh, strive to and that you can call them up and say, hey, what do we think about this? Interest rates are here. Should that change the way, I don't know, should it change anything about how I'm managing my finances? You know what I mean? Because it changed things for me, you know, like I, you know, when, when US two, when US two year notes hit 3%, I took some money from some of the riskiest trades I had on and I tucked it away in US two year notes at 3% because we were just staring at a US two year note yield of 20 basis points. And so, who, you know, what good does that do anybody? That's why everybody got pushed out the risk curve into crypto. Because crypto was this flywheel of, of you know, self-fulfilling positivity. It was, it was being dubbed as an amazing inflation hedge. And, you know, as it turns out, now we've got inflation and crypto is coming apart. You know, so yeah. kind of, you know, knowing, know, knowing where you are in the world, knowing where markets are in, in this, their sort of course of history is really, really, really important. And I know that it's hard to, I, I, like I said, I know that it's hard to get that education. It, it's, it's, it's changed though. Like I said, whereas I couldn't go on the internet and learn about trading, I couldn't jump on FinTwit and start following 20 of the most accredited macro traders in the world, right? I had to get a job, sit down on a desk and have somebody teach me, you know, what happens when interest rates move, Right. And I think that from that basic understanding of understanding interest rates and the cost of money and the price of money, I think that can lead you into a very good background and platform of understanding sort of financial and investment markets. And man, there's no more important thing to understand if you ask me. Yeah. Uh, money is in many ways a tool and whatever you're trying to accomplish, it's like, you know, the best hammer ever in terms of you want to you want to build an amazing garden. It helps to have some cash to deploy into that. Right. Yeah. You know, and I, I learned, you know, I, I learned not to be humble about that from another newsletter writer. That's a mentor of mine named Jared Dillian, who you may have heard of. He's a very public and vocal figure. But he he once said, like, I have enormous utility for fucking massive amounts of money. Right. I do. There's a lot of great things that I would do with a lot of money. And so, you know, trying to, you know, that's what you said before, like you you mentioned batting average, Aaron, you know, and that that's something that I am wildly conscious of as a trader. Right. I know my batting average down out to the third place at any time, you know, during the day, because my batting average is my P&L. Right. And my P&L is the thing that I carry with me 24 hours a day. And we take a snapshot every day, every week, every month, every quarter, every year, and we see what the PL looks like and we adjust accordingly. Right. So that's something that I do from my, you know, my trading account is my short term account that I like to have a really high batting average. Right. I look at that like a shooting gallery, like I'm showing up at a shooting gallery with 20 bullets and I'm trying to hit the, the most expensive targets with those 20 bullets and miss the least targets that I can, right? And that's my trading account, but my investment account is sort of rolling with the punches in the world. 
and having every quarter saying, you know, oh, this is my nest egg every quarter. What is the market favoring? What is it not favoring? Do I have too much of the things that it's not favoring? Should I get some more of the things that it is favoring? Is that a trend that's developing that might run for 10 or 20 years? Should I have a little bit, should I move some money towards that? And I think sort of, you know, the the, the full picture of balancing all of that and, and that understanding is, is really critical to, to one's, you know, mental health and well-being, if you will. You know, like having a good handle on that is a good place to start in life. Well, thank you for sharing your time with us because I think that uh, listeners of this conversation will have made uh, another step in that direction thanks to everything that you've shared. Um, if folks want to learn more about all the stuff that you're up to, where in the digital uh, world can we point them towards? Yeah, man. Um, Aaron, you guys can find – you can go to my website and check out some of my work, some samples of my work. It's tgmacro.com. Um, my Twitter handle where I'm pretty vocal or you could send me a direct message that I always try to respond to is at tgmacro. And for your audience, just because I trust you guys, if you guys want to email me, my email address is Tony at tgmacro.com. Anybody can reach out to me. Um, I try to help as many people as I can, quite honestly. Um, I knew that when I started out with this in this business that I was going to have to go from being a very reclusive institutional trader to being a very social and, and, and public newsletter author. Right. I, I always knew that it was going to have to be, you know, one person at a time. You're going to have to move the needle with mentally to gain credibility. And if that's the way I have to do it, then that's the way that I will do it. But for five years, it's been working that way. So I'm going to keep doing it. Beautiful. Well, we're going to link all that in the show notes for folks. You can find it uh, in the app where you're listening to this right now or going deepwithaaron.com slash podcast for every single episode of the show. But before we let you go, Tony, I would like to give you the mic one final time to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Okay. Wait, I, 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 you kind of got broken up there, Aaron. Can you repeat that, please? Yeah. So uh, we talked about the challenge in the email. Yeah. And my wrap up, the last question is, this is your last time on the mic to issue an actionable personal challenge to the audience. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah, here it is. So I'm, I'm sorry about that. Now I got it. My, my personal challenge to the audience is to um, honestly is to is to go through your portfolio. I don't know that if that applies to everybody, but I would like to I'd like that to be the challenge is to go through your portfolio or any investments that you have and sort of make sure that you are considering that investments in technology, the world has changed very much probably since you made them. And you should consider, you know, how long you want to keep those investments. And you should consider that the world has also changed since you've considered a, a, a bit of an allocation towards natural resources and to sort of, you know, force yourself to say, if I have no natural resources, how do I get off that zero boundary? And, and that's something that I can definitely help investors with. But I think that that's important. Um, that, that, that's kind of the challenge that I, that I challenge myself to every day. So I'm kind of, that's the one that I'd like to issue to your listeners, if that's fair. Yeah, I, I hope they'll, they'll take the challenge. And I hope that, uh, you know, from my vantage point, it's been trying to, you know, I, I feel like I've spent the last decade really trying to like, you know, what does this algorithm want? What, how does this tool work? How can this, you know, software make me more efficient? And I'm going to continue to do that. But at the same time, it's like, what is that made of? Like, what are the things that go into in your physical environment as a kind of grounding mechanism for like 
these all th- these things really matter. Like even though we're doing a software based interview, like I'm still using a, a MacBook here with you know that was probably uh, assembled at, at, with, at a Foxconn plant and you know has some aluminum, has these other pieces to it. You need to be cognizant of that if you're going to make it in the 2020s. Exactly. Well, just I'll, can I just add this if you don't mind? You know, we we have gone through this this you know decade and a half of intense globalization. Right. And the intense globalization was extraordinarily deflationary. Right. We have we had every every global government on the planet working hand in glove, bringing costs down, sharing and trading commodities and goods and services across borders electronically with no boundaries. And all of a sudden now we have gone to a period which to me seems like very obvious deglobalization. And all I can say that if you understood how deflationary globalization was, you should try to get a handle on, and and you're perfectly timing this, Aaron, for your listeners, for their future, get a handle on what deglobalization is going to mean for the economy, because it's going to be inflationary and it's going to change things. 100%. Could not say it better. Uh, Tony, thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. Great interview, Aaron. Really well constructed. Well done, my man. Thank you. We just went deep with Tony Greer. Hope everyone out there has a fantastic day. Hey, thanks for watching to the end of my conversation with Tony. If you enjoyed it, we have two great other interviews on the channel that will further this discussion. The first is with Peter Zihon, who talks at length about deglobalization, regionalism, and the way the world is coming apart. Then Doomberg gets into more detail about energy markets, how energy is life, and how he prepares for the calamities that he sees ahead. Both are must watch addendums to the conversation with Tony. Go check them out.